you, as always, for joining us again. Sorry if it's been a couple of weeks since our last episode, but I do have a day job. And I have three kids that have started school. One of those has started college. One of them has started high school football. So it's been a busy time of year around here. But let's pick up our study back together on Genesis chapter 3. As we always say here, there's no better use of your time than growing in the knowledge of God, as that particular knowledge is best revealed in the pages of Scripture. We're engaging with that content here week in and week out to become better equipped, first to walk with God, but also secondly, to walk with life through other people. It is important that we work on our understanding of Scripture because Scripture, like nothing else, reveals God. The more I grow in my understanding of Scripture, the more at peace I become with God. Because ultimately what is revealed when Scripture is properly interpreted is that God is right, God is just, God is good. Being at peace with God puts me at peace with myself and with others. The more understanding of Scripture I have, the better equipped I am to be an imager of God on the earth. That is, I am his representative to make things right in every way in the world around me, especially to help others become at peace with God as well. So, With that being said, let's continue with where we left off in Genesis chapter 3, which is a critical passage of Scripture. This is the event in history that all of Scripture points back towards as the event above all else that needs correction or from which we need redemption. It is the origin story of the fall of human beings and ultimately the entire planet. Since human beings were originally put in charge of the earth, when humans fell, Scripture teaches that the entire creation fell as well. That's found in Romans 8. All believers are currently in a position of both working and waiting to set this event in particular right. We're working here and now, by training in godliness to slow and correct the progression of sin. Which simply means being off target in our mind, our will, and our emotions. When these are off, our desires are off. Our judgment of life and others around us and even ourselves is off. That leads to the wrong use of words and actions and only exacerbates the problem of dysfunction in the world. And that is a big problem. We are also waiting for the consummation of all things at the return of Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're waiting for the resurrection from the dead because ultimately that is the only thing that will fully correct the problem of human sin. We can only do that in part through correcting our own actions and thinking. And that is why the return of Jesus Christ to the earth as a resurrected human being is called the blessed hope of the church. That is our hope to be set free from this dysfunctional world. And it's dysfunctional because of my own sin and the sin of those around me. And we're longing for that to be corrected. 
So we're both working to correct that problem here and now, and we're waiting for it ultimately to be corrected at some point in the future. But in order to see our work here and now productive, we need to first understand exactly what went wrong and what were the consequences that came about from that wrong that require correcting. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3 together. This is going to be our study from Genesis 3, starting in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They became aware of their vulnerabilities. They became self-aware, self-conscious. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. These are strategies to compensate for their vulnerabilities, you know, to, to cover up their vulnerabilities and their false strategies. Those particular strategies never work. Verse number eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Now, the key question we want to explore together is exactly what is meant by death. You shall surely die. Clearly, they didn't die physically immediately. Adam is said to have lived 930 years in the following chapters. The church has always taught that death meant spiritual death. That is, the uncreated light of God was removed from the human spirit which I hold is distinct from the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions. That's a part of our physical body, uh, describing the functions of the brain. Adam and Eve didn't lose their minds. They lost the ability to remain properly ordered in relation to both themselves and to the world around them as a result of the loss of the energy of the uncreated light of God. They became disordered in their relationship with God, with one another, and the world around them. Methodists historically call this light or energy grace. That's God's ability. I hold that this is what the tree of life represents. And so when we look at the end of Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So human beings were banished from the immediate manifest presence of God in the garden, and there was a guardian cherub placed to make sure that 
they would no longer gain access to the presence of God. Now, in the New Testament, it says, without holiness, no one will see God. God cannot allow that which is disordered in his presence. And so uh, human beings becoming disordered had to go to a different place. And then there's a barrier placed between them and God. They no longer had access to the manifest presence of the living God. And so what these verses describe is death being defined as a loss of access to the life of God. They no longer had free access to this place. The consequences of this loss, that is the full impact of being barred from Eden, are going to play out in Scripture as having an accumulative effect over time. We'll witness an increasing severity of consequences and momentum as time plays out from this act. And it will only be stopped or retarded by God's direct intervention at various points in history. So we might call it God's judgment, but God's judgment is really, in effect, an act of his mercy to stop the bleeding caused by this original act. It isn't until the completion of the work of the cross that those consequences from this original act are thwarted and even reversed. Ultimately, Pentecost, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, represents a renewal of access to the tree of life. The tongues of fire, described in Acts chapter 2, fire being the best word they had available for a combination of light and energy, is a restoration of the uncreated light or energy of God being restored to human beings through faith in the work of the person of Jesus Christ. So now let's kind of turn and and look at a key passage of Scripture from the book of Romans. This is a key passage because it is the primary New Testament text for a theological topic we call original sin. This provides us with the premise upon which the necessity of the cross is based. Because of original sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve, all human beings inherit sin as their ancestors. So let's look at what the text says in Romans 3, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. It's important to look specifically at what the corpus of Scripture teaches in regards to this issue, original sin, because many church traditions attach meaning to the text that isn't explicitly in the text, such as the idea of inherited guilt, the idea that because Adam and Eve were found guilty of sin because of their disobedience, Every human being inherits their guilt. That idea, however, is not explicitly stated anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you can find the complete opposite explicitly stated in the text. For instance, Ezekiel 18.19. Here's what it says. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son 
has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Clearly, individuals don't inherit the guilt of someone else's crimes. That is nonsense to a reasonable person. Now, a nation or a corporation might inherit guilt, but an individual cannot. So, for instance, if a corporation is found guilty of committing some crime, just because the corporation changes CEOs or the board of directors does not exonerate them from the guilt that the corporation may have previously committed, that corporation is still accountable. The same would apply to a nation. So the nation of Israel can inherit the guilt of a previous generation in the Bible, but individuals do not. They inherit consequences, not guilt. And that's an important distinction to make. Since precisely what we inherit has been a topic of debate, debate from the beginning of the church, let's try and summarize some of the best thinking found in church history around this topic. Adam's sin was and is the means by which we all become guilty. We don't inherit guilt, we inherit consequences. Because of the consequences, we inherit a corrupted, fallen human nature, along with mortality. We will eventually experience physical decline and death. Those are two consequences clearly everyone inherits. And because of that, every person inevitably, without exception, becomes guilty of their own willful disobedience. No human being comes into the world with an intact imago Dei or image of God. We all inherit a corrupted image. And as a result, problems inevitably, inevitably ensue that require redemption. So we are born in need of redemption, but we are not born guilty. From birth, we need redemption due to our mortality and corrupted nature. Those things have to be corrected by something outside of ourselves. We cannot correct, correct them on our own. And those problems inevitably cause every person to become guilty. But we only become guilty and along with that guilt stand condemned at some later point in time. Although this idea is not without controversy, this is where the idea of an age of accountability has come into play in church history. Children, infants, are considered innocent in the courtroom of heaven until they become guilty of their own willful disobedience. Now, I've already done a treatment of this topic as it pertains to things like infant baptism. I'll link to that in the description below if you want to re rehearse that information again or if you've never seen it and you want to watch it. There are videos on YouTube that I've done, two different videos. But here and now, I want to pivot to the teaching of Roman Catholicism on the difference between how willful sin negatively affects our relationship with God and puts our salvation in jeopardy. So, in a sense, we're metaphorically all Adam and Eve. 
Since we all become guilty of our own sin, what are the further consequences we face here and now? How does that jeopardize our position in eternity, in regards to eternity? How do we avoid repeating the sin of the first humans and losing access to the life of God in our innermost being? This is an important question to pivot to at this point. And I'm going to be reading from Catholic.com. I'm going to read an extensive excerpt from this because I think they cover this topic very well. And the title of this section is called, What is Mortal and Venial Sin? The Catechism of the Catholic Church provides, so I'm quoting from the website at this point, in 1855, mortal sin destroys charity. Now that's the word the Bible uses for agape love, love for God and love for fellow human beings. Mortal sin destroys this love in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, though it offends and wounds it. So, in a nutshell, classic Christian teaching, especially found in Roman Catholicism, holds that there is such a thing as mortal sin that destroys our love for God and our relationship with God. And then there's venial sin, which are lesser sins. They damage our relationship with God, but they don't destroy it. And so we'll keep moving forward with that working definition. In 1861, the Catechism says this, Mortal sin results in the privation or the loss of sanctifying grace. Now, grace, again defined, is the energy, the life, the ability of God that is working in us to restore the image of God. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. Then carrying on in 1862, one commits venial sin when, in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or complete consent. And then in 1863, venial sin, that is a lesser sin, weakens charity and merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. In other words, venial sin unchecked will lead to mortal sin. However, Venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it is humanly repairable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. And so what does the Bible have to say that might support these teachings of the Catholic Church? In Matthew 5.19 it says, Whoever then relaxes or breaks, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I teach this all the time. I'd never thought of it in the negative sense. So carrying on with a quote from the website, Our Lord teaches 
that there are least commandments a person can break and even teach others to do so, yet still remain in the kingdom of heaven. That is both a good definition of venial sin and perfectly in line with the catechism of the Catholic Church. Then Jesus goes on to warn us in no uncertain terms that there are other sins that will take us to hell if we do not repent, of course. For example, Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, Whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the, fire of, to the hell of fire. In verses 28 through 29, he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better, better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. Clearly, Jesus teaches there are some sins that will separate us from God for all eternity and some that will not. Mortal and venial sin. Again, Matthew twelve thirty two. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, Catholic.com is going to go on to cite a source from Second Temple Judaism as a springboard for this idea. It's not considered uh, authoritative by Protestants. It is by Catholics, but it's uh, important Nonetheless, this is from the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 39 through 46, which was written around 125 BC. It gives us an excellent historical backdrop that can shed light on the importance of our Lord's words in Matthew 12:32. As the story goes, Judas Maccabees and his army collected the bodies of some fallen comrades killed in battle. When they discovered these men were carrying sacred tokens of idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear, Judas and his companions discerned they had died as a punishment for sin. Therefore Judas and his men turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. He also took up a collection and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Whether one accepts the canonicity of First and Second Maccabees really doesn't matter. Whether a person accepts the inspiration of these books or not does not change the fact that they give us crucial information about the faith and practice the Jews shortly before the time of Christ from a purely historical perspective. The Jews believed that there were some sins that could be forgiven in the next life, analogous to what Catholics call venial sins, and that there were some sins that could not be so forgiven, analogous to what Catholics call mortal sins. That's the historical record. Some may argue at this point that this text only mentions some sins can be forgiven in the next life. It never says anything about any sins being unforgivable. And this is true. However, we also know that at least some Jews of the more orthodox bent believed in a state of separation from God or hell where sins cannot be forgiven as well. Jesus speaks of this in multiple texts of the New Testament. For example, Mark 9, verses 47 through 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
In the latter portion of that text, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 66.24 from the Old Testament as alluding to the existence of hell. And he was not saying anything novel or revolutionary here. According to the Talmud and many Jewish writings before the time of Christ, as well as Orthodox Jewish teaching today, the Jewish faith has included a belief in a place of eternal punishment for the damned for well over 2,000 years. Moreover, among the Old Testament passage used historically by Jewish scholars to this end, Isaiah 66.24 is one of the most common. I'm going to read a, a portion of that uh, from Isaiah chapter 66. This isn't on the website, so I'm going off script a little bit here. And I'm going to start in verse 22 because this is an eschatological passage from Isaiah where he is dealing with the very end of human history, a new heaven and a new earth. So there are both positive outcomes and negative outcomes he's talking about here. Starting in verse 22 from Isaiah 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Then verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So continuing on with Catholic.com here. Most importantly, we have to acknowledge that this is the faith in which Jesus and the apostles were raised. They would have been raised to believe there were some sins that can be forgiven in the next life and some sins that cannot be. And it is in this context, Jesus declares this to be so in the New Testament, as we saw from Matthew 12, 32 above. Now we're going to quote from uh, 1 John 5, verses 16 through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not a deadly sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin which is deadly. I do not say one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. We know that anyone born of God does not commit sin, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, three points, three closing points. These verses cannot be any plainer that there is such a thing as deadly sin and sin which is not deadly. That is precisely what the church means by mortal and venial sin. St. John distinguishes the effects of mortal and venial sin as well. Members of the body of Christ can pray for someone who commits venial sin, lesser sin, and life, speaking of the divine life of God, the uncreated light or energies of God, the tree of life, the presence of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying grace, all of those are the same thing, The life of God can be communicated to him through that prayer. But when it comes to deadly sin, St. John tells us not to pray for that. This is not meant to say that we should not pray for a person in this state at all. Scripture is very clear that we should pray for all men, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2. The context seems to indicate that he is referring to praying that God 
give the wounded member of Christ life directly through prayer. Divine life and healing can only come through members of the body of Christ to other members in a direct way if the person is being if the person who is being prayed for is in union with the body of Christ. For mortal sin, one can only pray that God would grant the grace of repentance to the sinner so that they may be restored to communion with the body of Christ. To understand this better, consider the analogy St. Paul uses for the people of God in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, the analogy of the physical body of a human being. St. Paul tells us we are all members of the body of Christ, and so a wounded finger that is still attached to its host body can be healed organically by the rest of the body. That kind of wound is analogous to the effect of venial sin. A severed finger, however, cannot be healed by the rest of the body because it is no longer attached to the body. That kind of wound is analogous to the effect of mortal sin. So it is in the body of Christ. Last point. Just after distinguishing between mortal, deadly, and venial, non-deadly sins, St. John says, anyone born of God does not sin. We know St. John could not be referring to all sin here because he already told us in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christians sin. It is clear from the context that St. John is referring to mortal sin here. Sin that leads to death. If we sin mortally, we are cut off from the body of Christ and are no longer in union with God. In that sense, the one who is in union with God cannot sin mortally. They can sin venially, but they cannot sin mortally. This is yet another clear distinction between mortal and venial sins in this text. And so I thought that was a good way for us to think about the consequences of Adam and Eve, how we are all kind of playing that role in our lives here and now. They committed a sin that led to death. We inherit fallenness, so God has mercy over us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have mercy before a good and holy God through the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so when we commit small sins, it does not sever our relationship with God. It damages it. It does not sever it. And if it isn't checked, if it isn't corrected, it can lead to severing that relationship, but not necessarily. And at the same time, we can commit sins that do sever our relationship with God and that lead to not just uh, death here and now in regards to the light and the energies and the grace of God, but ultimately to eternal death and damnation, which should make everyone feel uncomfortable. This is a warning to take our faith seriously, to take sin seriously, to be mindful of our weakness, and to be mindful of the things that bring us strength. So just as sin can damage our reception of the light and energy of God, There are also things that we can do to strengthen and fortify the light and the energies of God. That's a topic for another conversation, but 
listening to this podcast is one of the ways that can help us to strengthen our, our understanding of the knowledge of God and to grant us an increased access to understanding and understanding releases the light and the energy and the life of the uncreated God. So we're going to stop this podcast there. Uh, Glad you stayed to the end if you did. And hopefully we uh, are on track next week to do another one. I don't get interrupted with uh, busyness, but if I do, we'll pick it up again. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week and have a great day. Bye-bye.